You're listening to the Hunter Conservationist Podcast. Is this a Hunter Conservationist? It is the Hunter no. Conservationist Podcast. So Welcome, do- Curtis, to the Hunter Conservationist Podcast. Yeah. <laughs> 67 I, episodes, and you're like, I didn't what, know, I didn't know which one we are I'm like, is this an what underground? Is this, is we- this uh, around Canada? Is this, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's like, there's so many getting, to keep track of. Like, what, yeah, what sponsor roles am I doing little, on this one? Our warehouse is getting a little messy. We we could probably probably pull everything under one one brand. <laughs> awesome. Uh it it's funny, Jesse. We were kind of like texting back and forth on uh Sunday and just kind of said, like, yeah, let's do the podcast. Okay, good. Yep. Talk to you Monday morning. And um uh, it it was just it was that easy. So in, I was reading stuff in preparation for this podcast, and uh, I did not know this, but the government of BC Wildlife Branch has a policy on how to get approved to go on a podcast. <laughs> oh, I'm, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. And it was uh, sep- September of last year. I think we might have been one of the first ones to actually get a government employee on. And I, I, I'm just trying to think. I'm pretty sure it was Kel- Kate Nelson yeah. when we talked about um, the CWD surveillance program. Sure. And uh, I think she went as far as <laughs> she went to Helen um, and, and, and got permission. But no, I think, I think they, went right up to, they went right up to the communications oh, branch. Because yeah. yep. I remember they came back to us and said, are we going to get to hear a version of the podcast episode before you release it? Yeah. And I'm like, absolutely not. No, yeah, good answer. No, it's like, this is, this is what we're going to talk about. Like, I'm not here yeah. to Sure you can, we're just not going to change it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm not going to get into the, yeah. It's, yeah. Well, as you, I've probably told you this. I mean, the acronym is Giuseppe, right? For government communications. Yep. We call them Pinocchio. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it's we've had a few people on it. It's, it's not that, it's not that hard, but it's like, they, they do have to get their approvals. Um, Unless it's the director of fish and wildlife and then he'll just come on whenever he wants. Yeah. Matt from Alberta. I, I don't think he had to ask anybody ab- above him. <laughs> no, we well, did have... PC is just, is extra bad. I mean, it's, yeah. you know, it's extra bad here. And even with this issue, I know that they're, that one of the uh, newspapers is trying to get a government biologist just to speak to the population estimates and stuff and they won't let them talk. So yeah, there's lots of examples and it depends on the ministry. Like uh, environment actually has some really good people in Giuseppe that are really easy to work with and push back. And there's other ones that just won't ever talk. So it's, yeah. Yeah. Like um, the conservation officer service has got their own Twitter, yes, you know, thing. And so does the ministry of environment's, compliance and enforcement branch they've yeah. got their own social media that they look after so yeah and in terms of doing interviews like i'm pretty sure the cos i'm pretty sure they're the only arm of government that can then can take an interview like literally have someone call and do a media interview on it like i think they're the only part of government that that's allowed to do that right now oh okay okay mm-hmm. yeah. yeah makes sense so so you're 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 easier at the federation. You're, you're easier to get, get approvals. That's, I'm, I'm, that's I can the sell. Moral. I can self-approve. Yeah, that's the, that's the moral of the story. <laughs> uh, 
Hey everybody, it's Mark Hall, your host. And it's Curtis Hall, the co-host, as we discussed earlier, the Hunter Conservationist. This is the Hunter Conservationist podcast, and it's brought to you by the community-minded Alpine Toyota in Cranbrook, British Columbia. Winter is on its way out, and it's getting close to getting your summer tires on. So if you want to get your winter tires off, go get a new set for the spring bear season, spring turkey season, summer fishing season, fall hunting season. We've got lots of time before that, but uh, go down, see the folks at Alpine Toyota, and they can get you hooked up with some new tires. They're uh, big supporters of us, big supporters of Ducks Unlimited Canada, so you can feel good that you're helping contribute a little bit to conservation when you go through Alpine Toyota. So, Again, continuing thanks to the folks down at Alpine. Yeah, thanks Alpine sponsoring. This is a special episode. So this is an extra one for the month of March. Um, this is a hot topic. It's out there. Lots of people are talking about it. So we decided to to get an episode out uh, as well on it. So this will be um, this will be three for this month. So um, Jesse Zeman, Executive Director of the BC Wildlife Federation, welcome back. Thanks, Mark. Uh, thanks for having us on again and uh, such a quick kind of engagement on a on a pressing issue. Oh, it just uh, it seems to just it came out of nowhere and it's just evolving really fast and lots of discussions. As we were talking before the show, I got people uh, down in the United States that are trying to figure out what this is about. They're they're advocating, um, you know, that. Uh, hunters and conservationists down in the U.S. Uh, get informed about what this is and what this means for, for hunting. Um, they're trying to get people involved in writing our elected officials, um, you know, and standing up for hunting for Canadians. So they're they're looking for information too. We do have uh, followers down in the United States that uh, listen to this podcast. So hopefully this will help them out as well because um, I do think it's cool that we all um, have an understanding beyond our own backyard of this big thing that we call hunting that we hold near and dear. It's um, very different all over the world, but there's a lot of common commonalities. So it's good to see a growing number of people worldwide getting behind hunting and conservation issues, even if it's something you'll never see or benefit from, but you know it's, it's part of the broader community. So um, that's cool. So given that, um, you know, that I, I don't want to. I don't want to make the assumption here that that everybody listening knows everything about the context of this situation, to do with wildlife management, hunting allocation, and First Nations rights in British Columbia and Canada. So I'm just going to take just a little bit and do just kind of a 101 thing for, uh, especially for people that are following us out of the states. So in Canada. First Nations Aboriginal rights are affirmed in our Constitution, in our Charter of Rights and Freedom. So it's Section 35 of the Canadian Constitution, and it, it basically says that Aboriginal and treaty rights are protected by our Constitution, but doesn't necessarily specifically say what those all those rights are because it's going to be different with every nation everywhere uh, across the country generally um, it appears like in my experience that hunting and fishing 
is taken as an Aboriginal right across the country. Um, so that is very often considered one of the affirmed rights. Canada has had a rough time um, when that went into the Constitution. Mm -hmm. And what constitutes a right and mm -hmm. title and what the government can and can't do um, when it infringes or violates those rights has created a tremendous amount of court cases in Canada and generally the interpretations of what First Nations rights are in particular cases and how and that essentially becomes case law that applies um, beyond a specific case um, is really how this country and especially British Columbia has grown in its governance system is judges bringing down verdicts on very specific cases. Um, Haida, Delgamuk, uh, the Silkatine, some really big landmark cases um, that defined a lot of Aboriginal rights uh, in British, British Columbia. Um, sometimes they ended up in the Supreme Court of BC, sometimes they ended up in the, the Supreme Court of Canada. So that's a, a little, little bit of context there. So essentially uh, hunting and fishing for Aboriginal people in Canada, First Nations, is constitutionally protected. It's a constitutional right. Here in British Columbia, um, and I think this is probably where one of the big differences between Canada and British Columbia and the United States is we do not have a lot of modern treaties signed with each individual nation in their territory to define how the two governments interact with each other, you know, what's, what's acceptable and, and, and what's not. So a, uh, a nation, a First Nations in British Columbia have a, uh, a territory. Some of the territories overlap, but they have, um, you know, each nation has a defined sort of boundary. Let's put it that way. And it, and it covers all of British Columbia. It covers 100% of British Columbia. But 95% of our province, of British Columbia, are First Nations lands that are unceded. In other words, they have never legally ceded or signed away their land, lands to the crown of, crown of Canada. So there's, the, the, the government of BC is working through developing modern treaties for each one of the nations. Um, but it is a painfully, painfully long progress, uh, process. I think the Nisga Treaty the, the government of British Columbia and Canada started negotiating the treaty, which was signed, I think, in the early 2000s, late 1990s, somewhere in there, um, started over 100 years ago. That process started. And to date, there's only eight modern treaties in British Columbia that are signed. And what I mean by modern is they align with the Constitution and the affirmation of in Indigenous rights. There's about two, roughly about 200 recognized nations in British Columbia. So there is a lot of situations to do with resource extraction, use of the land and stuff that sits in kind of, I guess, this legal gray area of 
the government approving projects and issuing, you know, tenures and licenses on unceded land. They have to consult with the First Nations on every single government decision. So whether it's a mining project or a forestry project, um, one of the big landmark court cases was the government became obligated to consult with First Nations on every single approval. Um, and even hunting regulations are consulted. So that's a decision, a government decision, which will basically become a regulation. And so the province consults with Indigenous nations all over the province on the hunting regulations um, bef you know, before um, decision makers and cabinet make a recommendation for, um, for the next year's hunting regulations. British Columbia, I think, was one of the first jurisdictions in North America, Canada for sure, that embraced the United Nations Declaration of Rights of Indigenous Peoples and created a provincial legislation, uh, DRIPA, the Declaration of Rights of Indigenous Peoples Act, where the government committed to taking a number of or all of the articles, the principles of the UN Declaration, and starting to embed those into legislation, updating legislation in the province to take into consideration rights of Indigenous people. Uh, I think it was just, was it last week, Jesse, the government announced some changes to the Wildlife Act um, as part of that process of incorporating Indigenous decision-making um, and knowledge into wildlife management. Our game harvest policy in the province of British Columbia outlines um, a lot of a lot of different things game but specifically the game manage the game harvest policy um, deals with who who and how gets wildlife and basically the policy states that it the conservation of a wildlife population comes first and if there's a sustainable harvest that can be taken from a game population the allocation of animals to be harvested by people um, is first and foremost the consideration is for First Nations, then residents of British Columbia, and then non-residents. So that essentially, as, as I see it, kind of comes down to it. If there's, if the pie is shrinking, um, then those proportions may have to change because there's a tiered system of priorities and how the government would allocate um, essentially, I guess, like, like a scarce resource. If the resource was plentiful, then, you know, um, everybody's probably going to have as much or, you know, or more than what they actually need. But so that's, that's kind of a nutshell um, of our situation in Canada and British Columbia. Hope, hopefully you're knowledgeable about it if you live in the United States or elsewhere, kind of your situation and uh, can kind of compare and contrast to ours. Jesse, is there anything that you want to add to that just as a background? Um, yeah, I, I think you've hit it. So the important parts as it relates to hunting are around our federal constitution and specifically section 35, which are rights that say that First Nations have the right um, to harvest, you know, and, and gather um, fish and wildlife and other things uh, for food, social and ceremonial purposes. And as you outlined, most uh, First Nations in the province do not have a treaty. In this case that we're going to talk about tonight, there is already an existing treaty. And this treaty actually goes one step farther 
than the Section 35 rights in the sense that the treaty that was signed in 1899, I believe, states that First Nations have the right to hunt, fish, and trap undisturbed. And so that is kind of another layer on top of the federal constitution that we need to be mindful of when we talk about this issue. Yep. Yep. Good. Mm -hmm. Appreciate that. So there was, so there, I'll, I'll I'll get you to break this down, Jesse. So essentially the, the, the issue that's out there right now is there is a proposal on changes to the hunting regulations for starting next year uh, or or this year, sorry, this this coming um, summer uh, when the moose season starts, that is currently open for public comment. Uh, this whole thing kind of came out of the blue, uh, caught, caught people, because we're kind of sort of wrapping up all of the discussions that have been going on for almost a year now about the hunting regulations for the next two years. We operate on two-year cycles in British Columbia, uh, and then this this issue sort of came up kind of like rumor-like, uh, and then a little bit more official announcement-like, but it, it, it's, it's essentially um, the reduction of moose hunting and caribou hunting opportunity in a substantially large area of northeastern British Columbia. Um, that's kind of the the topic right now so jesse i'm gonna get you to walk us through everything that got us to this proposal uh, okay I'll, I'll you know for the for the sake of, i'll try to keep it brief um for the sake of of um, your listeners but essentially so so we have this treaty uh, which is called treaty a you can google it and so um in the northeast there has been a ton of resource extraction. And so um, by that, I mean oil and gas exploration. There's a big push around LNG, um, logging, Site C, which is a huge hydro dam. Um, there's a whole bunch of issues uh, that are happening on the landscape, which which essentially, you know, if you look at it from space, um, the southern part of this region has been essentially nuked by resource extraction, to be very blunt. And so <clears throat> amongst all of these treaties and so this treaty treaty 8 is is actually huge so it encompasses the peace region of british columbia which is about probably 22 percent of our province so that's going to be you know i don't know close to 200,000 square kilometers so i don't know what that is in miles 140,000 square miles but it also goes across northern alberta it goes across northern saskatchewan it goes into the northwest territories so this is like a huge chunk of ground that we're talking about and so we have all of this unsustainable resource extraction going on. And one of the nations that are part of Treaty 8, the Blueberry Nation, and, and in particular, the chief um, Yahi, basically went to court and said, as a result of all of this unsustainable resource extraction, our rights to hunt, fish, and trap undisturbed have been impaired, right? So essentially you're saying, the province has done a really poor job of taking care of this landscape, it's affected the way we live. It's affected the way that we hunt and fish and trap. And, you know, in the case, it talked about having to go farther from the communities and a whole bunch of other things. Long story short, the judge said, Blueberry, you're right. Province, you're wrong. And, you know, quite frankly, the province had a long history of really doing a poor job of managing the landscape in the Northeast. So, so this wasn't anything new. Um, before this court case started, the province actually approached the BC Wildlife Federation to essentially testify on behalf of the Crown um, and we respectfully declined um, because we felt that 
that what Blueberry was saying was actually accurate. And so, you know, in the south piece, the south end of this huge area, we have endangered caribou populations um, that have been suffering from unsustainable resource extraction for years. So we essentially said, we agree with the Blueberry's claim. They took the province to court. They won um, wholeheartedly. And so the judge essentially gave the, the province and Treaty 8 First Nations six months to essentially figure it out. The judge said, you have impacted their way of life. You need to sort this out. I'm going to give you six months. All authorizations, like in terms of resource extraction, are on hold. I'm going to give you six months to sort it out. And I don't want to really see you back in court. But if you need to come back, you know, I'll decide for you is essentially what the court said. So we get into this process. And by we, I mean the province and First Nations, because as stakeholders and the public, we're not involved. Um, and so what's come to light now, essentially, is that a bunch of this unsustainable, as far as we can tell, the unsustainable resource extraction is going to continue. And instead of dealing with that problem, um, government's proposal in this case is essentially just to change the hunting regulations. So they've essentially, you know, from our perspective, short-circuited what the judge said to them, i.e. go deal with these problems on the landscape. And they're saying, okay, well, we will just close caribou hunting. And this is for caribou that are not endangered, sustainable caribou hunting. And then we're going to reduce moose harvest by licensed hunters by 50% across, uh, you know, like I said, a region that's close to 200,000 square kilometers. And, you know, to put it in your, your, you know, your listeners' minds, there is a large portion which is accessible that has a lot of roads that's been heavily impacted by industrial development. But in that part of the province too, we have these huge protected areas, namely the Muskwakachika. There's a whole bunch of provincial parks that quite frankly, unless you have horses or a float plane, you are not accessing these areas at all. And so instead of kind of looking at this and going, what makes sense? How do we accommodate um, nations close to their communities? The province has put out a proposal that just said blanket, we're gonna knock everybody back by 50% across this whole area and we're gonna get on with our day. And so there's a whole bunch of problems under that, um, but that takes us to today. And I mean, we can get into the technical details, Mark, if you want and talk about how many moose there are and what's sustainable and where we're at too. That's probably part of the story, but that's that's what's got us to where we are. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, it, it, it's, it's a complicated issue. <clears throat> that court case with the Blueberry River First Nations started six years ago. <clears throat> so the, the, the decision was 20 in 2021 last year. So it, it, this has been in the courts for six, six years. Um, so the issue of the impacts to the land, it's not anything new. Um, it was recognized decades ago. Um, it's very difficult for some First Nations in British Columbia and Canada to to go to court to fight for these things. Uh, it's millions and millions of dollars to go to court. And six years, um, the emotional wear and tear on people and stuff, you know, fighting for these things. Uh, this this was it was a long time coming to this decision. Um, in that decision, the judge said or, or basically accepted evidence that was put forth that said 
some areas within the Blueberry River First Nations territory. So a smaller segment of this broader area where the government wants to reduce moose and caribou hunting have had caribou declines. Mm -hmm. And some areas have, the judge accepted that there have been moose population declines as well as Martin Mm -hmm. and Fisher, which would affect... Uh, indigenous trappers, um, you know that that's a little a little piece of this as well, um, but not not everywhere across this large area. So, so give us give us a little bit of a snapshot of this area from a wildlife abundance perspective, harvesting perspective. Yeah, how much of an impact hunters are having. Yeah, sure. I think that you know the big one is going to be moose. Um, the caribou harvest is is small. Again, it's in a super you know the caribou harvest that that continued at least to last year was a super super small chunk of ground up in the very northern tip super remote you know very little access um but the moose the moose piece is big and so let's talk about the moose population up there and i think you know what you're saying is right there are areas where there's been impacts to wildlife populations um, but those are at a finer scale not across 200,000 square kilometers right um, so okay. in terms of the population estimate, um, what I come up with using government's data, um, and I've asked them to validate them and they, they can't find anything wrong with the numbers, I'm coming up with 60,900 moose in the Peace region. So when we talk about sustainable harvest of moose, typically, you know, 5% is pretty easy um, in terms of sustainable harvest, 10% is pushing it, right? So, you know, that's that's kind of the way it works typically across the province. Now, in the piece, we're also doing wolf control for caribou recovery in about 12 management units. And typically where we do wolf control, you can actually have a sustainable harvest rate of 15% and sometimes even a, up to 20% for moose in areas where you're managing wolves. So that's kind of the bounds that you would put on sustainable harvest. And then if you had the money, you would go out and fly and do inventory and then adapt your harvest. But basically, when you come to the numbers, you're gonna come up with a sustainable harvest between 4,800 and 7,500 moose per year in this region. That's the sustainable harvest. Currently, until this year, licensed hunters were harvesting, if we average it from say 2016 to 20, they were averaging about 1,270 moose out of a sustainable harvest of 4,800 to 7,500 moose. So. So already wow. we are miles now, from I've been sorry, go ahead. Oh, so sorry. Sorry, Mark. Okay. Nope, keep going. We just had a bit of a lag there. Okay. So already when we put that in context you know you know in these in these non-caribou recovery zones five to ten percent is sustainable caribou recovery where we're shooting wolves 15 to 20 percent already we're going to be harvesting like two percent of the population now the province is saying we're going to cut that in half and reduce it by 50 percent and so currently the regulations up there for moose it's an open season you can buy a tag but there's antler restrictions so this is where bc gets complicated but essentially the moose has to have less, two points or less on one antler, or it needs to have 10 points or more on one antler, or it needs to have three points off of the brow. So that regulation came from Alaska, but essentially that's the regulation. You buy a tag over the counter, you go out hunting, 
the moose needs to meet those criteria for you to harvest it. So it's pretty close. It's not a fail safe season, but it's pretty close in that sense that there's a lot of escapement that happens between the way we harvest moose. So anyways, we're going to cut this in half. We're going to move to a draw system, which means that we're going to go to an any bowl system. So when we talk about the impact on hunters, on resident hunters, you're cutting the harvest in half. So you're going to go from, for residents, it was around 1,150 moose. So you're going to go to about 570 moose, right? So, you know, when you think about that, in terms of what a moose provides, um, it's in British Columbia, in terms of our red meat consumption, each moose represents red meat for probably five to six people in British Columbia, mm-hmm. right? So let's say 500 moose times five to six, 2,500, 3,000 plus people are going to be affected just in terms of getting venison, right? Getting moose meat. Um, the number of hunters, because the hunting regulations change, it's gonna we're gonna lose about 75% of the hunters through that. So that means we're gonna go from, you know, basically 5,700 hunters a year to about 1,400 hunters a year. So a huge cut and then a huge cut in the number of days that hunters get to go out and spend because we have these hunting regulations now It takes hunters on average 46 days to harvest a moose because hunters like to go hunting. They're trading off the ability to go hunting regularly for harvest. Now, if we go to this LEH, it's probably going to take, you know, 14 to 18 days. So the number of days that hunters are going to get to spend in the field is going to be cut by about 80%. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the math. So, you know, on the economic side, we're talking, um, you know, going from basically $18 million a year to probably three and a half million dollars a year will be the economic impact. So, you know, you're going to wipe out 14 plus million dollars in expenditures. Um, and you know, for, for really for thousands, you know, 3000 people plus, um, they're done moose hunting period. Yeah. And, and, you know, so, so the idea of conservation, the idea of sustainable, um, science-based wildlife management is it, it it is gone from this equation Jeez. now what confuses me um so shed some light on this with what you know so th- this proposal that the wildlife branch has developed is a proposal that they have discussed with all the nations within the Treaty 8 area uh, of Northeastern BC. It's essentially, um, I'm thinking, the proposal, the reduction in the number of moose taken and the number of hunters is a solution to a problem that they've discussed with the nations and the nations have said, yeah, we're, we're good with this, I would assume, otherwise the province wouldn't be going ahead with it so what do you know about that like what precipitated the province to say we need to talk about this thing and this is a solution we're putting on the table is it in relation to more industrial projects that they're trying to get approved is it the consultation that was being done over the current hunting regulations for for this coming year like like why did the government meet with the indigenous governments to say what's going to work here what's the problem and is this a solution you can you can accept from us yeah so so we're not privy to all those discussions but but you know 
from our perspective and in terms of what we've seen out of the, the Ministry of um, Indigenous Relations and Reconciliation, I mean, you know, the emails, the correspondence we've seen is, you know, we're approving all of these projects. So I guess from our perspective, the judge told the province to sort out the cumulative effects issue. We, you know, there is some money flowing in that direction, but we assumed that that would be the focus. And instead the focus has been on hunting regulations. So, um, you know, our, our discussions with First Nations have indicated that they're not happy with the way this has gone. And I think, you know, at the top end, a big part of the challenge is you have a bunch of people in the room who are lawyers, most more often than not, who don't know anything about wildlife management or about hunting. They don't understand the hunting regulations and they're just looking to make a deal, I would say. And so that is a big part of the challenge here. And, you know, more broadly, when we talk about reconciliation, um, the BCWF has partnered with Treaty First Na Treaty 8 First Nations and a number of First Nations all over the province. We work on, all, you know, pretty much all of our projects are, are joint projects with First Nations. Part of the challenge is that the province's approach to reconciliation is let's make a deal as opposed to let's do what's right. Let's figure out a way to move First Nations and non-First Nations community forward so that when we do come to an agreement, these people are better off than they were when they started. Um, and so the province, I feel like sometimes sets these situations up for failure in the sense that, you know, we already had this with endangered caribou in the Northeast where the province went in, signed an agreement, and there was a huge public blowout as a result, instead of going out and talking to the communities as we told them to, as First Nations told them to, as other stakeholders told them to. So there, there are some incentives, I should say, for the province of British Columbia to get deals done as opposed to thinking through and playing the long game. And by playing the long game, I mean, in our case, taking care of fish, wildlife, and habitat. Yeah. But the nations, as far as you know, are, are they discounting this proposal to change the hunting regulations? Like they're going like, no, like you're, you're not dealing with the issue that was impacting us here. Um, yeah, it, or it's... are they like great we'll take that but you still have to deal with this problem like what's what's well what it's, you know about it's that kind of read on it i don't want to you know I, I i i'm very reticent to speak on behalf of nations but the indication yeah, and the meetings that we've had absolutely. have been you know this is not what they wanted and you know we have had you know nations say we were looking for win-wins in that in this and we don't feel like we're getting it um so you know, I'll, I'll leave it to First Nations to to, to speak on, on their own behalf, yeah. but definitely. Yeah, absolutely, because there's a lot of them and they, they yeah. could have differing opinions yes. within the various nations even. Yeah, on, so on you, you, as well. yep. you absolutely will have that. But the indication is this is not what we wanted. And I will say, you know, also Treaty 8 First Nations have expressed interest in having a grizzly bear hunt in the province, a licensed grizzly bear hunt and managing um, predators and setting objectives and all these things that we talk about all the time. So there's a pile of commonality and common ground. It's that the challenge here is that the province is, is you know, like I said, I think they're, they're just simply taking a shortcut here. That's, that's right. really, it's like, let's make a deal and get this off of our plate and let's get some permits out the door because we need, an, we got to get LNG out of our province and start exporting it and, 
fill pipelines and all the rest of that stuff. I think that's the the motivating factor here. Yeah, and and the other thing too is is down where we live uh, in the Kootenay, southeastern BC, we have a big one of the biggest mining economies in Canada around the coal mines in the Elk Valley where Curtis lives. The other, let's say, half of British Columbia's coal deposits you carry on up the Rockies are up in this area in the province in the Northeast. Um, there were a lot of coal mines opened up there a number of years ago. Coal prices dropped. They didn't. They don't quite have as good a coal quality as what we have down here in the Kootenays. They shut down and now they're all getting fired up. They're going for expansions. There's, um, God, there's mines, coal mines that are proposed smack dab in the middle of endangered caribou winter range that, that are going to be coming on stream into the environmental assessment process probably in the next few years. It'll take years. And, and nations up there are involved in this. They're involved in the EA process in these coal mines in the day-to-day discussions of these coal mines expanding. They have the same problem up there as we do with the coal mines in the Southeast with incredibly high loads of selenium in the streams. That's a big concern, you know, for the nations um, as well. Um, You have nations like the Soto who are actively taking the lead on caribou um, recovery up there, um, the maternal penning program, the habitat restoration work and stuff. So it, it, it's a very complicated landscape. There is a tremendous amount of industrial activity that has happened in the past, but it is queued up to probably be one of the largest economic engines for mining anyways in the province. And we've seen in the last few weeks worldwide people are probably looking for a lot more places where they can get petroleum out of the ground right Um, so that's probably got the eye back on northeastern bc because essentially the oil and gas industry kind of took a nosedive you know there a number of years so so it's going to get ramped up you know as well and um so there's a lot of discussions going on with those nations a lot more impacts you know could happen so I can I could completely understand if if there are nations that are are seeing this as as not where the attention should be um, when there is all this extra industrial impacts that are that are queued up as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you know, there's a few. There's there's the immediate, and so the way this is partially being sold is this is just for two years while we figure out our world. And I will give a little bit more backdrop around the Peace Region, um, where we we have been trying to get habitat restoration, where we've been trying to get controlled burns pulled off, where we've paid for everything, including consultation, burn plans, prescriptions. And government just says no. And that includes when we have letters of support from First Nations. So, you know, the the peace region has been an unmitigated disaster in the south of it, for sure, in terms of resource extraction, but also in terms of, you know, when people are trying to show up and do habitat restoration, government has essentially said no. So, I mean, there's a huge issue there where government really needs to clean up its act and get on the program. 
First Nations, there's definitely common values between all of us on this. Um, but I think, you know, the, the broader, so that's, that's the now, right? And so I think there's room to move on that. I think there's room to move in caribou recovery areas. I think there's room to move in remote areas that are not near communities. Um, First Nations have expressed kind of an interest around, they like to hunt at the end of August and they don't like seeing a million people. And if you have a million roads, you're going to see a million people. So they also don't like hunting right in the rut. So there's, there's things that can be done to kind of accommodate all of these interests and still let people go hunt and enjoy nature. And the province has just said, no, 50% cut across the board. Here's how we're doing it. And so I think there's mileage to be made on caribou. I think there's mileage to be made in caribou recovery areas, because if we're going to be shooting wolves, we need to be managing moose in those areas as well. Right. And yeah. not, not ending up, you know, some of these management units, like these are the highest density moose populations in BC. Some of them have like 1.3 moose per square kilometer of habitat. Like literally there are thousands of moose in some of these units. <laughs> right. So, so there's flexibility in this. And I think that's, you know, that seems to be where the nations kind of have an interest and where I think we can all work together on a, on a solution. Um, but we don't really have much time. And so, you know, the big call to action for sure right now is for people that go on the hunting, the provincial government, the angling, hunting, trapping engagement website and send in their feedback. That's a huge part of this. I know there's tens of thousands of letters that have gone to MLAs, which is great because I'm hearing from MLAs about it. Um, but I think, you know, broadly, everybody really needs to think about this, especially people in British Columbia, is that if this is the way we are going to manage hunting and fishing and wildlife by trading off resource extraction, you know, by trading off your ability to go camping and hunting and fishing and snowmobiling and river rafting, in favor of resource extraction so that we can negotiate a deal with First Nations, I mean, we're done. Like, quite frankly, I know I've heard this, you know, well, I don't hunt up in the piece. And it's like, well, that's great, but it will come to your area. If this, if you let government get away with this approach of essentially trading you off in favor of resource extraction, this will come to your backyard. Like this will be in the Skeena. This will be in the Caribou. This will be in the Kootenays. Right. This is a really, yeah. you know, these, this is a quick win for government. And so if we don't stand up and tell them this is wrong, you can't do this. We are going to lose our minds if you take this approach. Um, you know, we're, our, our, the future for us is, is bleak. I mean, and quite frankly, then the future for fish, wildlife and habitat is really bleak as well, because we're just signaling to government, hey, go out and nuke the landscape and cut us out of the equation. Get, keep keep people off the land so they can't see what's happening, <laughs> essentially. Um, you know, one of the things, so I'll just, we'll kind of wrap up with a few things here. So one of the things that I've been seeing from all of the groups that have been advocating, um, you know, to get involved and voice your opposition to the proposed cuts, are coming back to the provinces together for wildlife strategy. So it's essentially like a relatively new initiative in the province of British Columbia that if, if I'm not mistaken, was sort of a grassroots push against government from resource, uh, like, like recreational users, hunters, anglers, indigenous communities, outfitters, um, 
wildlife viewing operations, backcountry recreation opera operations that basically said to the government, the way you're doing it on the landscape is not working. We need a new approach to managing wildlife and having everybody at the table heard. Uh, it was a little bit of a, a push for the non-hunting voice to get a bit more of uh, a say in wildlife management in the province. And so the government responded, developed this Together for Wildlife strategy. Um, there is a minister's advisory council of, I think, 18 people, um, you know, that make recommendations to, to cabinet as well or to, to the minister. And what seems to be rubbing people the wrong way is the spirit of the Together for Wildlife strategy and its goals seem to be completely disregarded in this, this current moose proposal for, for the peace region. And I'll just go through the goals here quickly. Um, all British Columbians have a voice in wildlife stewardship. It is a goal that data, information, and knowledge drive better decisions. It is a goal that stewardship, stewardship actions achieve tangible benefits for wildlife. It is a goal that accountability and transparency build trust and confidence. And it is a goal the collaboration advances reconciliation and indigenous governments with indigenous governments. And so some of the, the narrative that I've been seeing out there is this violates just about all of those principles that everybody has been at the table trying to develop, agree upon and move forward. And all of a sudden, wham, they're out the window and people are like, well, what the hell? Yeah, well, and this government also said that they were going to use science-based wildlife management for everything other than grizzly bear hunting. That's part of that was part of the platform commitment, and and here we are, right? So again, you know, um, elected officials say a lot of things, and not all of them are true, and not all of them have meaning. And I would say, you know, this is where folks who like to go out and enjoy nature and BC's backcountry need to speak up because, you know, politicians, elected officials can flip flop any day of the week. When the temperature gets hot, they can reconsider and make adjustments. So, um, you know, you can shape the argument however you like. I think the most important thing is to have your voice heard because there are definitely going to be a lot of different voices. And I think, mm -hmm. you know, especially um, on the reconciliation piece, I really think that government needs to wrap its mind around the fact that it, it should be trying to bring first nations and non-first nations together like that to me is reconciliation and action and that's what we try to practice at the bc wildlife federation with all of our projects you know wetlands projects the scientier mule deer project you know we're, we all care about fish wildlife and habitat so we should all be talking about it and all be trying to steward it as opposed to saying you know yeah the judge said cumulative effects but let's just change the hunting regulations and continue on and get our permits approved, right? So, yeah. you know, really, and you're right, around the economic stuff, the Northeast is worth $2 billion a year. That's what it's worth, right? And so our budget is probably $60 billion. So it's nothing to sneeze at. But, you know, it doesn't mean that we have to stop all resource extraction. It means that we need to do a better job, right? It doesn't mean we have to shut down the economy. It means that we can't have um, uh, right away or a... a Oil, a linear feature 
every 500 meters. Like I can't remember what the statistic is out of the court case, but just about the entire blueberry territory has a road within 500 meters of it. Yep. Like there's some sort of human disturbance. God. It was like 73% of the landscape. They were within a few meters of a human disturbance and 98% of the landscape was within a few hundred meters of some impact that resource industries have had on the landscape. Yeah, it was, it, it was pretty, and that's just within the blueberry nation, but um, you know, it, it is a lot of the, a lot of the land up there. So the, so the point of it is though, is, is we have to do a better job, right? And we have to work with first nations because the values, I mean, I get to meet with first nations all the time. Our values are the exact same. They really are. We share everything in common and government has set up a system where we see each other as competition, as opposed to seeing each other as allies. And I think, you know, as we try to work our way through reconciliation, I hope that we can both look at each other and go, look, together we are going to do great things and fighting over a crumbling pie, um, we are not going to do great things. Um, but in this case, I mean, this is one where folks who listen to your podcast really need to be heard. Um, government is listening. They're feeling the temperature um, in the piece, you know, and I know that we have through our the BC Wildlife Federation, there have been thousands of letters that have gone out to MLAs in the last, just in the last four days alone. So, yeah, you know, yeah. people need to get active and they need to engage. Yeah. Um, Cause if you don't, like if this is, if this, if this is the way and we aren't going to speak up, this will roll across Oof, the province. Man. Yeah. 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 Jeez. You know, one of the single biggest things that concerns me about this is what you talked about before um, is the potential for this to become divisive, divisive between indigenous communities and resident hunters, you, you know, recreational users of the land. Um, there's going to be all levels of opinions and biases and and out there, you know, um, in in the province, and I'm I'm worried about, you know, narratives developing around this. On, on two ways, there's two narratives that I'm really worried about. I'm really worried about a narrative developing a, that that is that is very derogatory towards Indigenous people. I, I am, I'm, I'm very concerned about that. We've been experiencing that across this country immensely from lobster fisheries in Nova Scotia, um, people, warehouses burning down and stuff. Like, I'm just, I'm so fearful of that. I do not want that to happen. I don't want anybody to be sub subject to that. And it bothers me to know that a decision kind of came onto the table so quickly that that had the potential to lose control of it like that and, and, and have groups like very violently opposed to each other. I mean, we've seen blockades during hunting season. We've seen some, some, yeah. you know, borderline violence yeah. stuff happen. And it's like, it, the world does not need that, you know, right, right now or at any time, indigenous communities do not need um, you know, those headaches. So I'm worried about that. Then I'm worried about the narrative developing, uh, cause hunters are a small percentage of the population, right? This narrative developing around it of, of you're, you're just perpetuating colonialism. 
So here you are, you know, you've come in with Western views and Western science. You've taken all of this stuff from indigenous peoples in North America. They used to hunt and manage the land and fish and everything was fine. We've messed it up. And now you have to give up, you being us, the, the um, non-indigenous hunters. Now you're having to give up something that was theirs wholeheartedly before and you're, and you're, you don't want to lose something. And it's like, that's what they've been fighting for, for, for centuries. And so, you know, sort of pulling out the, um, the science piece, the, uh, uh, the economics piece could be twisted into a narrative of, that's just an example of colonialism in 2022. And I don't know if you're seeing or hearing any of this. I don't know if this, this type of thing has had a chance to develop, but um, I'll be honest, I, I'm very worried about this thing derailing into one or both of those. Yeah. And so just around that, that's, so we cut loose a press release a few weeks ago. Um, you know, obviously we're tangentially evolved in the last month, I would say maybe a little bit more and, you know, it's all under confidentiality, but what had happened is there was a public stakeholders meeting in the Northeast where there were a whole bunch of people and it was leaked. This proposal was leaked at that meeting. And so we came out, uh, every, I let everybody know we came out the following morning. I told them, you know, my phone started ringing by that, that afternoon and there were phone calls spreading across the entire piece and the MLA was picking it up. And so um, I let government know and said, we're going out with a press release tomorrow. And they were not happy, but it was for just that reason is because I'm not interested in all of the, the BS that doesn't help. It doesn't move us forward. And so yeah. that's why we launched that. I had staff that worked that weekend that were watching social media and, um, and I think, you know, the piece around science is a fair comment. Uh, I think part of that is reconciliation is, you know, there's local, local people's opinion. There's First Nations, TEK, traditional knowledge, and then there's science. And it doesn't mean that these are all unilateral approaches. It means that they can all work together. And in terms of localized impacts, absolutely, totally agree. There are areas where there are fewer moose for sure. I mean, when you go and fly over or drive through that landscape, it shouldn't surprise anyone that there are declines in wildlife in areas because there's nothing really there other than, you know, seismic lines and roads. It's, it's hard to grow anything other than mud and gravel in parts of, you know, when the landscape's that new. So, yeah. so I think those are hydroelectric dam. That's yeah. Right. In site C where we're flooding out an entire Valley. Right. So, I mean, those are all reasonable, but I don't think it's, you know, I don't think these are like insurmountable where First Nations and non-First Nations can't work together. I think this is just, this is the way we look at this and these are the lenses. And I think, you know, yes, I'm sure there are localized impacts and there are localized issues where there are declines. And, and for sure, First Nations, you know, part of, part of the way, part of their culture is they have spots that they like to go hunting. And quite often those are close to communities. And so we should be thinking about that because First Nations don't want to travel 500 kilometers from their community. That's not part of the way they hunt and fish and trap. And so we should be looking at ways to accommodate that. Um, but that, but again, on the flip side, that does not mean that we just go 50% closure across yeah. a 200, 200,000 yeah. square yeah. kilometer area. Right. And so I think there's, I think there's room to move on all this. Um, I think we got to, you know, people who enjoy recreating got to speak their mind. They got to engage their MLAs on this. Um, but I don't, you know, I, I don't feel 
you know, there's going to be the crazy people that come out on this issue, but I don't feel like we're in that place where we're having that okay. conversation. Okay. No, that's, yeah. that's good. Cause you're, you're definitely like really on the pulse of this provincially. So, um, that's, that's reassuring to, to know that cause you know how things are nowadays. It's like, man, everything tends to blow up and in, into something. So, um, yeah. And the other piece I, to consider around government to government is, you know, and this is where first nations does a really good job. Typically they go ask their communities what they want. The pro the provincial government is not doing that with the public. Right. So from yeah, first nations yeah. perspective, obviously they have negotiators and all the rest of that stuff. But they talk to the nation and they talk to their community members and they say, what's important? What, where, where would you like to go? You know, when was the last time the province reached out to you and said, hey, Mark, how do you think moose are doing? We'd like to improve that. We're hearing some complaints. What do you think we should do? Or what do you, you know, we don't get that. The province is not, is not the, our part of the G is not really asking us what's important. Well, we get we get our opportunity for public comment at the very end of the process. We're not inputting goals and values um, into the middle of the process, which I do believe you're right. That's how the indigenous communities work on on in in the consultation forum. Anyways, it's this constant back and forth discussions with their community members right at the very outset of things. Um, the rest of the public typically gets their say at the very end, kind of when everything's sorted out and the decision pack packages are ready to be signed off, right? Um, so a lot of people are frustrated by that because they feel like their voice doesn't make a difference. They're not being asked at, at the at the mm -hmm. beginning. Right. So, so um, in that case, you know, that's the question. At that stage of the game, are they asking you or are they telling you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's um, the, the, yeah, pub public comment period is, is a little bit of a... Um, Maybe a misnomer in some people's minds. Okay, so last thing. If, if the advocacy and the concerns of people get some political movement and this is pulled back um, or held off for the upcoming season, that's not that shouldn't be the end of it. There's no. something else right. in here that's going to say, okay, now let's sit down and talk. What do you see the steps being there if that's the outcome? What do you see the next steps of the hunting community being if the outcome stays the way it's proposed? Yeah, so so either way, I mean, I think, like I said, in the interim, we need people on that angling, hunting, trapping engagement site. We need them to be submitting their feedback. Um, after that, regardless of what happens, we've been pushing and I think government is open to a process to basically sort out our world and the peace um, over the next two years, right? So, you know, again, we kind of come back to this world and Mark, we've talked about this a number of times. What do you want the landscape to look like? How many moose do you want? How many bears do you want? How many caribou do you want? How do we get to those objectives? What are the barriers? You know, do we need to be managing some species more intensively? We need to be getting rid of roads. We need to be doing controlled burns. And then once we work through all of that kind of approach, you know, what's it going to take financially to do that? Right. And then the next piece is, okay, how do we divvy up the pie as the pie changes? That's kind of the process. And I think the government is becoming more and more alive to that, that they need to have people who really have a vested interest, who really care deeply about the resource, they need to be sitting at the table and talking to First Nations about what the future looks like. 
Because I think the government is realizing that they really um, are not in a place to fully understand how important the sustainability of fish, wildlife, and habitat is, and how important hunting and fishing is to hunters and anglers in BC. I think they're I think they're getting that message. They're understanding that. Awesome, Jesse. Thanks for coming on the show, this special episode. Um, you're well connected to these things and uh, got a good way of breaking it down for the average person to understand. So hopefully um, we've this podcast will add value um, to people's understanding of this situation. Uh, you still have time to engage on the government's um, public comment page. Uh, we'll put the link in the show notes. It's till the 23rd. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. It's yep. quick. It's so, a, I mean, normally they give you at least a month and in this one, I think we're barely getting two weeks if that. Yeah. So, so anyways, you still got a bit of time. You can listen to this. I know there's some other podcasts that have been out. You and Dylan did one uh, last night that Dylan got out right away. The Eat Wild podcast and uh, our other colleagues here in British Columbia um, that have podcast journal mountain hunting, um, focus hunting, um, the who else curtis wilderness uh, locals wilderness locals they're they're all doing a panel tonight um which is why like we won't be on that panel because we're having this discussion with with you they're going to be getting an episode out so there's a few sources of information that um you can listen to uh learn hopefully everybody will provide some common themes and some new information for you so i'd encourage you to listen to as much as what you can get your hands on and then by the 23rd please Go onto the public engagement site and voice your concerns, voice your support for something, voice your opposition to something. Um, just be heard and let people know um, what your thoughts are, what's important to you. And we'll leave it at that. Thanks for all that you guys do. And I appreciate the time and space to be able to talk about this so quickly. And, uh, and folks can check out our social media. We've got updates going out every day on this issue. We're going to stay locked on this. So there's infographs coming out on our website. There's direct links to letters to the MLAs and to the angling, hunting, trapping website. So um, appreciate it. And for all the folks, uh, all the people I know that are meeting with their MLAs, awesome work. They're hearing you. Um, we know that they hear you when they ask us questions and I'm getting a lot of questions. So uh, this is good. Keep up the good work. And, um, you know, the more people that can join this, this discussion, the better. Awesome. Yeah. Well, cool. thanks for coming on. Glad, uh, your policy there at the Federation is easy to get you on the show. Less than 48 hours turnaround time. That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> cool. Curtis, go ahead. Sweet. Well, I'll keep it, uh, keep it short and sweet. Sounds like folks got a, uh, a lot of work ahead of them doing a bit more digging and writing letters and all that sort of stuff. So Hunter Conservationist Podcast brought to you by community-minded Alpine Toyota. I think the Alpine Toyota would want you to get engaged with your elected officials to make sure that we can still have hunting opportunity in British Columbia. So thanks to those guys, and yeah, get to work, folks. All right, everybody. Thanks. We'll see you in the next episode.